any of you know that I'm a bit of a news junkie. And um, in the news this last week, there's been all this uh, different inputs and people reporting on something called the Asbury Revival. That at Asbury College, a private Christian college in Kentucky, there has been this, this unusual revival that is going on now 11 days, that it, it, it began apparently with just the regular, mundane, three days a week, all the students are required to go to chapel. And chapel's just chapel, typically. It's, uh, we, we're supposed to do this, we do this, it's, it, it's a good time, but we're not really expecting a whole lot to happen there. And then it does. A chapel ended, and yet the students didn't leave. They continued in, in prayerful worship and praying together in small groups, confessing sin one to another, and some got up and, and picked up the microphone again and, 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 and testified to what God was, was speaking to them in their heart from his word and, and, and confessing things to others out there. In the, in, and, and this has just grown and increased. And, and the public at large watching in on this isn't quite sure what to make of it. One of the theological theology professors from the seminary across the street, you know, comes, comes over to find out what's going on over there at the college. You know, we pray, hey, it's a wonderful thing going on there at the college. Maybe it could happen at the seminary too. That'd be really good, right? Uh, revival hits seminary. That would be news. But, uh, and yet in the midst of that, the, the, the media is trying to figure out what is this thing? Washington Post, NBC are thinking, well, what is this? And they've, they've said, we don't, want, we don't want you to come and bring your cameras and lights and make a spectacle out of this. We don't want well-known Christian evangelical conservative speakers to come and, and, and speak to the students now. God is moving here among those who f- believe in him and follow him. And it's exciting to see what happens with this. And it raises the question, people are asking out there, what is this thing called revival? Do we need revival? And it reminded me of another article that was written a couple years ago by somebody named Brandon Meeks. I'm not going to read the whole article. It's a little longer. But I want to read some excerpts to, to question this whole notion of, do we need revival? He writes, we need revival. The implication is that there is some intrinsic deficiency in the Christian experience, some void that needs addressing, some gaping hole that only a new move of God can fill, something miraculous to offset the monotonous existence of ordinary Christians. This notion is grounded upon the outrageous assumption that the gifts and graces already given are insufficient for the task to which the church has been called. We have, he writes, the personal presence of the triune God operating as both vanguard and rearguard as we march beneath the banner of the crucified and risen Christ. We have the delegated authority of the one who left death cold and lifeless in the grave. We have the very spirit which raised Jesus working in us, upon us, with us, and for us. We have Moses and the prophets. That is to say, we have the word of God, quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, unbound and unbridled. We have treasure in earthen vessels. We have meat to eat about which the world does not know. 
We have the infinite power of creaturely weakness imbued with the sufficiency of God's own self. We have lives we can live and deaths we can die for the glory of God so that there is no scenario in which a life cannot be offered in sacrificial service for the sake of Christ. We have enough. And enough is enough. To say that we need revival, he says, is to say that the presence of God among his people is not enough. To say that we need revival is to say that the word of God has lost its, its generative potency. To say that we need revival is to say that the preaching of the cross has lost its ancient power. To say that we need revival is to entomb the church of God in an already evacuated grave. As long as we need revival to do virtually anything meaningful for the kingdom, we are pretty much free to sit on our pious rears and pray for the kingdom to come. But he says, more than revival, perhaps we need obedience. Perhaps now is the time not to seek revival, but to deny ourselves to take up our cross and to follow him. Now, I appreciate what what um, Meeks is, is, is writing there, it, it describes much of uh, what, how Ephesians chapter 1 starts out in terms of spiritual warfare, which will culminate at the end of the book. But Ephesians 1 starts out as Kathy told us that Tasha was focusing on with some of these girls, our identity in Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly. We lack nothing. And in fact, God works in the world this way. And I would suggest to you only this way. Or at least, maybe that's too, too much, but predominantly this way. Through his people, with his word, by his spirit. That's how God works. Through his people, by his word, with his spirit. Or with his word, by his spirit. Revival, however, I think there are times clearly observable in, in church history, and sometimes it's a, it's a large-scale uh, movement. Sometimes it's a local, much more personal moving. But there are times when God seems to tip the table a little bit, where those same three essentials through the people of God, by, with the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, that those three key essentials seem to just work in a much greater way, in a much more powerful and effectual way, in the, in the changes in life that are seen, that the Word of God hits God's people more fully and clearly, impactfully, convicting them and creating a new passion and willingness to sacrifice for others that drives them on mission toward the people around them in a very sincere and authentic way. You've had these times where sometimes when you're doing a particular task, let's say, guys, you're trying to put something together. Our garage door quit this last week. All it would do when you push the button is make this horrible noise. That told me the garage door is broken. 
which led to changing the garage door, which led to making a hole bigger, which led to all kinds of things. This was one of those jobs that it should be easy, it could be easy, but this was not installing a garage hill, a garage door downhill. This was installing a garage door uphill. Sometimes jobs are like that, right? Everything is harder. Then you do something out of order and you have to undo that and take that back apart in order to fit it through there first so then you can put it back together again. You've been there, done that. Sometimes working with people is like that too. Other times, other times God just tilts the table. And you don't know where that verse came from, but you had the right words to say to that person and it changed everything for them. And rather than being defensive toward the word, they were receptive and they took it in and, and, and God is clearly working. And it's like, it's like you're running downhill and everything about your ministry to other people around you is just easier. Everything about your own experience and walking with the Lord is just flowing, and it's wonderful. And I am eager for that. If God, I, I, what I want for us to be is I want for us to be not a revival-stirring church. I don't want us to be a church that is going to do what we could to stir up revival. There have been efforts about that around Asbury. There have been a lot of people who visited the campus there at Asbury, and then they went back to their own. They're trying to, oh, well, let's do what they're doing, and maybe we could bring revival here. Well, the do what they're doing is simply this. The people of God yielding themselves to the Word of God by the Spirit of God. It isn't any more complicated than that. And if God then has us in an environment where we feel like we're climbing uphill, so be it. If God has us in an environment that by His Spirit He tilts the table and everything happens together in ways that are beyond our expectation, praise God for that. Will we as a church be practiced, ready, willing to yield ourselves as the people of God, giving ourselves to the Word of God so that the Spirit of God will indeed be working through us in ways that we're not even aware of or in ways that surprise us. Will we be revival ready? And I think that, that pushes the question that is in Luke chapter 9, which is what is the crux of following Jesus? We have said that we as a church, we are about our purpose is this, to know and follow Jesus by helping others to know and follow Jesus. So you see, it wasn't a real difficult task to come up with a series title for, the, for, for this exposition through the Gospel of Luke. That Luke for us is going to be about knowing Jesus and following Jesus. What can we see? And Bob is picking and choosing, but he's not dodging hard passages. Well, not all of them. Because we're landing this morning on deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Somebody asked me before the first service began, well, how are you doing this week? I said, well, it's been a, diff a different week. I said, well, what do you mean? Well, in a week when you're preparing to talk to others, about deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And first, that, that word has to hit you. And what do I do with this? And how have I done that or not so much done that? That makes for a hard week. That makes for a confession week. 
Oh, Lord, give me courage and trust in you to deny myself, to take up my cross, to follow you. And yet, I think that's the crux of what it means to fall. So what I want to do this morning, I want to give us an overview of the chapters so you see how that fits, because there's some pieces around that that make all the difference for us doing that. There's some reasons why that Luke gives us around that central call, that if we miss those, then we're just going to have to buck up our obedience and our own strength and try to guts it through. And I don't want you to try to do that. I want us to do this in full awareness and immersion in the grace of God of what he has done for us and is doing through us. So let's open up to Luke chapter 9. And beginning in the first nine verses, I'm not going to read them, but the first nine verses, Jesus sends the 12. He called the 12 together. He gave them power and authority, and he sends them out. Now, grab hold of that in the bigger picture with what Pastor Ryan shared with us last week, and Jesus is now made his disciples the sowers. Jesus sends us who follow him. He sends us out to sow. Now, here he sends the 12, but if we take that forward applicationally, he sends us into his field. Okay? And they have a mixed response. Even Herod's response is included in there, and Herod's not a receptive response. Herod is a plotting and scheming and conniving response. But the response will be mixed, but they are sent and they, are, they will go. And some places will receive them, others they will kick the dust off their feet when they leave. But he sends them. First he goes, and now he sends them. And then the next episode that follows that is a little more familiar episode, and this is where I need to pause and invite the kids up. So kids, we missed our kids' talk at the start of the message, but I have my basket, so you need to come. So kids, come on up, and we'll just have a sit-down right in the middle of the message. We don't normally do it this way, but... but if, if I get caught up in announcements before, the, before having the kids come up, sometimes I forget to have you all come up. And I mean, I brought food for you and everything. Wouldn't it be great if there were 12 of them? That would just make this perfect. We're missing a couple. How many? We got three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. We're just missing one. Is there one more kid out there? Oh, come on. No? Well, okay. We're just going to go with the 11. Judas isn't here this morning. Okay. Well... Now, Jesus, Jesus has gathered, there's like 5,000 men there. We don't know the total number, but there's like 5,000. Oh, here comes Judas. Okay. <laughs> and and um, um, he's, so there's all these people, and Jesus has been teaching to them all day long, and, and he's been healing people that needed healing, and, and it's been a long day. And the disciples are realizing what's going on, and they're out kind of in a, in a rural area. There's not, there's not a lot around them. And, he's, and, and they come to him, and they say, Lord, we need to send the people away out into the surrounding villages. Some go here, there, 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 because there's not one place where there's enough food for all of them. So they need to scatter now and go find some food for themselves, because... And Jesus' response to them is, and this is important. This is the, I think this is the central part. There's, we focus on how, how they all were fed, but I think the important point of the story is this. Jesus tells them, you give them to eat. You give them something to eat. And, and they say, well, all we've got, you know, they looked around. Unfortunately, this one guy didn't, this one young boy that was there, he didn't, he didn't hide his lunch bucket quick enough, Okay. So, so, the, so one of the disciples spotted it, probably Judas, and, 
and they, and they grab his lunch, and he's got five loaves and two fishes, right? Well, don't think big loaves of bread. Think little loaves. Think like dinner rolls. Because the five rolls and the two small fish are his food for the day. And so it's not a whole lot of food, but that's all they've got. And so Jesus says, okay, now have the, have the um, people sit down in groups of 50. So there they are. They're sitting out there in, in all these different groups, about 50 each. And, he, and he, apparently they have 12 baskets, one basket for each of the 12 disciples because there are 12 baskets at the end of the story. So this part I don't know for sure, but I'm just going to fill it in for you. He takes the bread, and he has five pieces of bread, right? He takes the bread, and he takes some of them, and he splits it in half. One for you and one for you. He spits it in half. Okay. But, but there's not enough with five. That would only make ten. So some of them he actually has to split into three pieces. But just take one, for, just for illustration purposes. You don't have to eat it. Okay, and, he, and, he, and he, he splits another one, and he gives that to two more of the disciples. Okay, pass it along to others. It's not for you. You're supposed to give it to others, remember? And then another time, he's got to, again, take that one into three. So those are not big pieces of bread. Everybody gets some. I don't want any. Everybody's got to get some to, to, to finish the picture. Okay, so now they've all got their piece of bread, and they stick it in their big, they got a big basket. They stick it in their big basket, and now they're supposed to all go out to the groups there, and they're going to feed the people. They're going to feed a group of 50 people, a couple times over with that little piece of bread. Now, how do you think that's going to go? They're going to go to that group of 50 people, and they're going to reach down in their basket, and they're going to pull out that one little piece of bread, right, which you've already gnawed on. And that's all they've got? That isn't going to go well. But when they get to the group of, and, and they probably don't want to do it, but they do it, and they get to the group of 50, the first one they go to, and you know what happens? They pull out the bread, and they pull out more, and they pull out more, and it keeps coming, and it keeps coming, and the basket never empties. Everybody has enough, and they're full up. In fact, there are 12 baskets full left when everybody's had enough. And that's the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 with just five loaves and two fishes, right? That's amazing. That's surprising in itself. But Jesus told them, you give them something to eat. And they said, well, we don't have anything. What can we give them? Are we supposed to go and buy food for all these? And then Jesus says, no, just take this little piece, put it in the basket, go. And yet, who fed the people? Who fed the people? Yeah? Jesus fed the people. Who fed the people? Jesus. Jesus. Who fed the people? Jesus. Who fed the people? The disciples fed the people. Now, to really be right about it, Jesus fed the people through the disciples. See it? Up till now, Jesus has been working directly with people in need. And in this moment, Jesus feeds the people through them. Okay? On that note, take your loaf of bread. If you don't want it, you can put it back in the basket. Otherwise, take it back with you, and let's carry on from here. So, Jesus, shortcut, Jesus uh, sends us to sow, but not only does he send us to sow, he sends us to be the messengers, but now he also, Jesus is working in the midst of the world through his disciples. Jesus sends us to sow. Jesus works through us. Okay? That's, that's a shift in what's coming. That's going to lean into the coming church age. Even when Jesus is no longer among us, Jesus works through us. 
That sets up what's going to be coming. But the danger then, if that's true, is that Christians can miss the crux of Christ's mission. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. Therefore, that implies certain expectations that they're going to have. Let's pick it up in verse 18. Now, it happened as Jesus was praying alone. The disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ of God. All right. And so Jesus says, surprisingly, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Isn't that odd? He sends them as the ones to sow. He sends them as the ones to give out the word. He sends them as the ones to tell. In fact, in the world, he is going to be working through them. In the world, he's going to be working through us. Does he also tell us, don't tell anybody? Why does he tell them, don't tell, don't tell anybody else that? You are right on. He is the Christ of God. Don't tell anybody else that. Because of what they think that means. That is absolutely true, but they miss the crux of it. They miss the key. They miss the core. They miss the essential. They miss the cross. He says, don't tell. He strictly charged in verse 21 and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, so this is why, this is the explanation of why he, t- he says don't tell that. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and on the third day raised. They wanted a Christ. They wanted the Messiah who would, who would deliver them from the Romans, send the Romans packing and put them back in charge and reestablish the kingdom like the kingdom of David. And oh, that will be wonderful. Everything wrong will be made right again. That's what they wanted. Healing all of our diseases, fixing all of our problems, restoring us to health and wealth and prosperity. That's what they wanted a Messiah for. That was their expectation of what the Messiah would do. So if the disciples simply went out and told everybody, the Christ is here, the Christ is here, now where's his kingdom? Where's the blessing? Where's the fruit of it? Where's the result? When are we going to get rid of these stinking Romans? And yet the Romans are going to be the ones to crucify him. The the Son of Man which is a messianic title right out of, out of the book of Daniel, the Son of Man must be rejected and crucified. He is sending them on his mission and what they need to know, what they better not miss or they will not carry out that mission faithfully, what they better not miss is this mission is a mission that is centered in the cross. The Son of Man must be rejected and crucified, and then risen from the dead. And what about those who follow him? Well, those who follow Jesus are going to have to go where Jesus goes. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're not following Jesus. I, I once heard in terms of Christian leadership, if you, if you think you're leading now and again, you should take a look behind you and see if anybody's following. Because if nobody's following, you're not leading, you're just going for a walk. Okay. Well, could it also be true if you think you're following Jesus, should you now and again take a look ahead and see if Jesus is ahead of you where you're going? Or if you've wandered off in your own direction? 
If I want to follow Jesus, it means I have to be going where Jesus went. Or I'm not following him. I'm following something else. It may be my own desires. It may be my own ambition. It may be all kinds of things. It may be a good friend, but I may not be following Jesus if I'm not going where Jesus went. Well, where did Jesus go? Verse 23. He said to all of them, He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? As we sang, only you can satisfy. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes into his glory and the glory of the the Father and of the holy angels. The glory is coming, yes, but there's a cross to take up first. If we're going to follow him, we have to go where he went. The cross comes before the crown. I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of of God. See, Jesus is telling his disciples that the normal path of following him is going to be a path of denial of sacrifice. Now, he's not saying this just to the 12, that the 12 are also going to die a martyr's death. In fact, some of them will literally be crucified. That is true, but he's not saying it merely for them because he says to all. Did you catch that? He didn't say to them. He didn't say to the 12. He said to all. And he said, anyone who would follow me. He says, whoever. This is a much more general statement than just those 12. Although it was certainly true of the 12, and we follow in their wake. We follow in the same example. And that example was described by Peter. It's not an example merely of suffering to death, of actually literally being crucified, that we should all expect that too. We should expect to die a martyr's death. Some may, and there are Christians around the world, perhaps even every day, that die a martyr's death. They die because of their faith in Jesus. That is true. It hasn't been true in our near experience for a while, but there is, there is a sacrifice to be made. There is a price to be paid. And Paul describes that as normal Christian life, that this is a take up your cross daily. So it's not merely pointing to an ultimate loss. A person who is literally crucified is crucified once. On one day, And it might take up to three days to actually die, but you die. You don't take up your cross and be crucified daily again and again and again. But it's a metaphor for extreme sacrifice for the sake of others. Jesus himself is going to be crucified for us. His death in our place. His death for the guilt of our sin so that we would be right with God in him. And similarly, then, we would live a life, the Christian life, then, is going to be a self-denial life. It's going to be a taking up my cross life. Paul describes it in Philippians 1 and verse 22 this way. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, we would think of it the other way. We would think, for me to to live is good and to die, well, that would be Christ. That would be sacrifice like Christ sacrificed. No, no, no. To die is to be in the presence of the Lord. To, to die is to, is to be absent from the body and to be with him where, where there's fullness of joy. To live right in following Jesus. Those who would live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. No, to live is Christ, Paul says. 
He expresses it somewhat differently in Colossians 1.24 where he says, I fill up in my own body what is still needed or necessary or is lacking in the sense that it's still needed in the afflictions or sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. Now, isn't Jesus' death enough? Yes, his death is enough. His death is sufficient for the forgiveness of all our sins. It's sufficient for whoever believes on him and his death in your place, and you will be forgiven by God and have eternal life in Christ. His death is sufficient. You can add nothing to it. But what is still needful is not Jesus' own death or afflictions on top of that, but afflictions like Christ's. It's not Christ's own affliction that Paul's talking about, something's needed. It's afflictions like Christ, a Christ kind of affliction that is still needful in the church. Paul says he is happily willing to fill up in his own body the kind of sacrifices sacrificed for the sake of others, just like Jesus sacrificed for the sake of others. That that kind of sacrificial denying of self for the sake of others is still needed in the church, the body of Christ. Okay, that's normal. A Christ kind of suffering for the church. And that's what he calls us to. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me there. Okay, that's a tall order. That's a big deal. That is a big ask. On what basis does he ask this? First of all, that he has already demonstrated that he is sending us in his place. We are ambassadors for Christ. He sends us to sow. And he has already demonstrated that his working in the world, even after he has ascended to heaven, his working in the world is going to be through his followers. He is working through us. That in itself is a glorious thing. That God himself is working. He is doing his grand work, his redemptive work that Jesus gave his own life to pay the cost of. He is doing that through the weakness of those who believe in him. That's amazing. But there's more. If the disciples are going to do this, in fact, Peter will later say his confidence His confidence in the word that they preach does not come from some cleverly devised tale. But he says that the confidence in his message that he, he gives his life to preach, his confidence in it is because we saw him on the mountain. The next episode that comes along in this little narrative is... They're going with Jesus to, he, in fact, he closes the call to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I tell you truly, in verse 27, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And then the very next thing happens in each of the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the very next thing that happens after he says that is the transfiguration on the mountain. About eight days after these things, he took with him Peter, James, and John. They went up to the mountain to pray. And as they're praying, the appearance of Jesus' face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. Two men were talking with him. Why, it's Moses and Elijah. Wow. And there, 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 
they're, they're transformed in glory, and Jesus has been transformed before them. They, they appeared in glory, and they, they spoke of Jesus' exodus. They spoke of Jesus' departure. This is a big deal. And Peter gets all excited about this. And, and there's, there's a lot of things that connect back into Daniel that we could, we could apply here, and I'm not going to do that for the sake of time. But I, but I, I want to just give you this. They're going to get another glimpse of the of the coming of God's kingdom when the Spirit comes upon them on the day of Pentecost. But they get a little glimpse of the future right here on this mountain. He has just told them it's going to cost you everything. You're going to need to deny yourself. You're going to need to sacrifice. You're going to give. You're going to need to give for the sake of others what you'd rather keep for yourself. And yet it's for this. And he gives them a glimpse of the kingdom that will come in the fullness of its glory. And that strengthens them. That shouldn't surprise us that he gives them that glimpse. Remember Moses, just after they've come out of, out, of, out of Egypt, gone through the Red Sea, and Moses is up on the mountain. They have encountered God at Sinai, and yet the people have followed the golden calf. And they have pursued this rampant hedonism. And, and yet Moses is supposed to still lead these people who God has told them they are a stiff-necked and rebellious people. And Moses says to God, if I'm going to lead these people, Oh, God, please, show me your glory. Lord, if I'm going to do this, it's a big ask. If I'm going to do this, Lord, would you show me something of yourself? Give me another glimpse of you that will sustain me, that will strengthen me for the task with which you've given me. Elijah comes to the same mountain after a time of discouragement. That after, after the glorious moment of Mount Carmel, and yet Jezebel is not at all impressed, and she is out for Elijah's head, Elijah flees, and perhaps in the shame of his running away, he doesn't feel his life's worth living anymore. And he comes to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and there to get a glimpse of God, and God meets him there. Isaiah, before Isaiah is going to be tasked going to a people, though they're not going to hear, and yet before, before Isaiah is given that task, first Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw him high and lifted up, and the glory of his, his, his train filled the temple. Isaiah has this glorious vision of God in all of his glory, and he sees himself in his sinfulness, and yet he experiences God's redemptive forgiveness and purging and cleansing of his sin and guilt, so that when God says, who, who shall we send and who will go for us? Isaiah can put up his hand and say, here I am, here I am, send me. It was a vision of God's glory of who his God and Savior was that equipped, that sustained Isaiah for that ministry. John, on the island of Patmos, the same thing. On the island of Patmos, in exile for the testimony of Christ, and there the Lord himself appears to him. And he gives him this glorious revelation of God's future and how it's going to play out, not only for John, but it's for John. But not only for John, it's for those seven churches, those seven churches who are enduring great difficulty and trial and persecution, or churches like the church of Laodicea that are in danger of compromising, are in danger of denying their faith so that they can keep their wealth and comforts. And so they are strengthened by this vision of our Lord in his glory and his coming kingdom and reign. 
Do we need now and again, if we're going to step into this call to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him, do we need as well, like Moses, like Elijah, like Isaiah, like John, like those churches, do we also need to see his glory? Well, we have Moses and the prophets. We have the gospels and the epistles. We have the word of God. This is a, what theologians call a special revelation from God. And I can tell you it is special. It is special. But it is revelation. What does that mean? God has revealed himself in it. God shows us himself. You want to know what your God is like? That's why we're in the Gospel of Luke. To know and follow Jesus. Because it's not worth trying to follow if you don't know. If you haven't seen. And so we want first to get a glimpse of his glory. His glory in our redemption. How he so loved us that he gave himself for us. And the reality of his return and of his reign that will put everything that else that seemed momentarily important in its right perspective. And he's given us a heads up look ahead to that now. And so, Hebrews chapter 11, what it is? That hall of faith is people who are taking God at his word for the future that puts this life in perspective because they look for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And therefore they are willing, as, as called in, at the end of, of the book of Hebrews, they're willing to follow him and to go with Jesus and to suffer with him outside the camp, to be rejected by others because of the name of Christ, because of the glorious future that is set before him. And so, and so, Seeing his glory helps us to follow. Now, what might that sacrificial following look like? I tried to give all that explanation so I could spend very little time on the application because this is the difficult part. No, we need to talk about this, don't we? What will it look like? What could it look like? It's going to mean declining temporary gain or pleasure or position. Not saving my life. Not being ashamed of his name. Not gaining the whole world and all the things and recognition and comfort and possessions that the world has to promise and offer us. We're willing to give that up. You know, there was a teacher this last week who was fired because she was not willing to go along with the normal line today that if a child in middle school wants or elementary wants to transition, uh, the parents might not be accepting of that, so you lie to the parents about it. And she said, I'm a Christian. I cannot do that. I cannot affirm them and lie to their parents about this. The parents have every right to know this for their children. I cannot lie to them. Well, because your faith does not allow you to lie about this matter, you can normally be employed. We're not, we're not able to accommodate your religious objection. And she was fired. A police officer a week or so earlier, because of his own personal post, on his personal time, on his personal social media, described what his own personal views of marriage were. Because of that, he was told by his department that he no longer had a future with them. There are going to be choices that you're going to face professionally about what you can or can't do and can you stay true to your convictions concerning who Jesus is and his call upon your life in the midst of that work and it may call for a sacrifice, it may call for a change. 
There'll be times when you might turn down a job offer because, simply because that's going to mean more travel and I need to be with my family. For my good and for their good, we need to be together. I cannot be on the road six months out of the year. That is not going to work. I can't do that with the charge God has given me. And so you, you would turn down that opportunity. That um, perhaps it might be in your giving, in your tithing, that it seems silly to your friends, maybe to colleagues at work, that you would give away 10% of what you make. You would give that to your church for the sake of ministries, for the sake of things like uh, people going around the world and sharing the gospel with others, for the sake of ministry in our own community, for the sake of building others up as followers of Jesus, that you would give what you could keep for yourself. You would give that away. It doesn't make any sense to them. You could do something else with that money. It's kind of like retirement. You have a 401k, and yet you put, you put now money you could use today, you put that into that for the future. Whether it seems to grow or not, you continue to put it in. Dollar cost averaging, they say, whatever that means. But you're told to keep putting it in. You're told to not take it out yet. You're going to need that later. You take it out now to use it for the immediate. It's not going to be there in the long term when you need it. Well, investing for the future, Jesus said to store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Deny yourself here, invest in that retirement which is out of this world. But how do I balance that? How do I, how do I know how much, how far to go? How far do I push this? How much do, do I deny, deny present pleasure for the sake of the future? Well, Paul says the sufferings, I'm convinced he says the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared are these light afflictions, which are but for a moment, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's hard, to, it's hard to balance, but I can tell you this. If we talk about the job example, I can tell you this. I've never, towards the end of life, when somebody's looking back on the various stages of their, of their life proceeding, I've never had somebody tell, you know, I wish I'd put more into my career. I wish I'd put more into pursuing positions. I wish I'd put more into, into um, possessions and property and less time into my family, less time into my friends, less time seeking to know God and to tell others about my Savior. I don't hear that at the end. I always hear it the other way. I wish I'd done it differently. I would wish I'd chosen less in this life and more for the sake of eternity. Because if you, as you get closer to eternity, that becomes clearer. That that what matters more. And that what's here cannot be held onto and shouldn't seem as invaluable as it is. It might mean not needing the recognition, the comparing of ourselves against others. Look at verses 46 to 48, where the disciples easily get sidetracked as to which one of them is the greatest, when that is not at all the point. They should be thinking which one of them is the smallest. They should think children's ministry. Give yourself away to something that some might think isn't going to make any difference. You have no idea what the difference will make. It will mean in embracing, accepting the rejection of others. Look at the, the um, encounter with the, with, with the Samaritan village in verse 51. In the days that drew near for him to be taken up, crucified, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead, and they went and entered a village of Samaritans to make preparations. He's going to stay with the Samaritans. What was he thinking? But the people did not receive him because he was going to Jerusalem. The Samaritans didn't like the fact that he was on his way to Jerusalem. 
And when, the, when James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus turned and rebuked James and John, not the Samaritans. Jesus was willing himself to be rejected by others, and we're going to need to follow him there. Be willing to put your faith out forward, even if it's going to be slapped down, because that's what Jesus did. He stood before his own hometown, even though they were going to reject what he had to say, and yet he told them anyway. It might mean forsaking the legitimate comfort or enjoyments that you could enjoy. Look at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, really? The foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We're camping out. It's going to cost you some comforts if you're going to go this direction. One choice you might make is instead of a new car payment is going to be we're going to, we're, we're going to support missionaries instead. Um, maybe it's an anniversary trip. Instead of taking that anniversary trip, we're going to give that money to the building fund because in the next generation, in 20 years from now, it's going to be much harder to build a building where the kind of ministry that can occur is going to be very needed, but it's going to be much harder for a church to build then than it is now. And so we're going to use what we have to invest into the future. Somebody gave me a donut card, Mr. Maple. Now, them's some good eating. And I took my donut card to Mr. Maple one morning, and I got a dozen donuts. And I brought them in to our Monday morning sermon workshop, and they were gone. Guy told me afterwards, he said, I'm surprised you did that. He said, I thought you were going to use that for yourself. You know, here a donut, there a donut. Well, truth be told, I love donuts, but I don't need a dozen donuts. It was far better for me to give the donuts away. Now, that's a small sacrifice, right? I mean, a a, a box of donuts, really? That's your example of deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me daily? Well, daily, let's talk about yesterday. What have you got? What have you got? I've been going back in my mind and ashamed a little in the last week, in the last month. Couldn't it have been a lot easier to find examples of sacrifice? Or I'm willing to give myself away for the sake of others. What about fasting and prayer? What about time instead of at the end of the day and I'm tired, just want to sit down and, and numb out to the TV, watch something? Yet I could make a phone call to a couple different people that would just be good to talk with and encourage. This last week, we heard an example from uh, uh, Faye Davis's life at her memorial service where one after another, grandchildren, others in her family talked about her phone calls. They were, they, they, they were not living close to a lot of the family, but Grandma was known for her phone calls. So could you. They, they, they joked about, oh, grandma's, phone, grandma's calling. It's going to be a half an hour, 45 minutes on the phone. And yet they loved those phone calls, and they always picked up. Grandma was known for her phone calls. You could be known for your encouragement of others if you gave your time to do that. It might be declining other duties or entanglements. It might be extracurricular 
extracurricular activities that so easily fill our schedules. We have purpose as a church that we want you to be involved in worship together as whole church. We want you to be involved in being equipped for the work of saints, the work of the ministry. We want you to be connected in a small group or a D group sometime in the midst of the week. We don't want you to be involved in all kinds of things. We purposely do not have a smorgasbord of programs because we want margin to be preserved that you've got time within your own family, that you've got time for neighbors and friends who need you because Jesus has sent you to sow. Jesus is going to be working and sharing with them through you. But we can easily be too busy about all the stuff that seems so important. It might be dance and band and taekwondo or boxing and karate or maybe all three. It might be drama club or future farmers of America or basketball or football or soccer or the other football and baseball and t-ball and bunch ball and all kinds of things that we fill our kids' schedule with because it seems so important. And then by the time they're 22 or 23, we realize none of that mattered for anything. And surprise, surprise, they didn't get that NCAA Division I scholarship. And even though we got them on a select team and ran all around the region, that was not their future. And the best future they could have would be following you in giving yourself away for the sake of somebody else. To, as Paul put it, that they would follow you as you follow Christ. I need to stop here because our time is gone and you have lunch and all of that, which we don't want to deny ourselves of. But let's pray. Father, we have, we have considered the need for you to revive. We have considered the need... And the reality of the, of the unique working of your spirit, perhaps on a, yard, on a large scale, but Father, certainly we would ask that you would do that on an individual scale. That you would do that on a brush prairie church scale. Father, that you would move within our hearts, that you would be at work by your spirit, both to will and to do in our lives your good pleasure, which in following your Son is a sacrifice, is a giving of ourselves for the sake of others. Father, would you make us willing to do that? Would you give us a next step, a concrete way that we could lean in, step into something today, this week, that would be denial of that which I might claim for myself, but I would yield it back to you. I would give that as an offering of worship because of your great love for us. And that you, you would, you would stoop, you would humble yourself to do your grandest work through we, the weak and frail servants, faulty at best, and yet strengthened by a glimpse of your glory and empowered by your grace. Lord, use us to show someone else, Jesus, that they could know and follow him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.